that's it. Galatians chapter 5. As I said last week, this is where the book of Galatians transitions into the application section. We kind of talked about that last week, where application is the uh, taking of God's word and putting it into practice um, as a result of the truths that we encounter. Um, and as we continue to study through, we, we find more applications. We find more things that this is the word of God, and it comes to bear up on our lives. And, and so I want to look at two more this morning. Um, and so let's do that. Beginning in verse 10, uh, he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will have, uh, you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And so Paul expresses confidence that, uh, the Galatians, the churches there in Galatia, as they receive his letter, will respond to the correction that he has given them, to the foundations of truth that he's built upon, uh, that they will return to a true and correct understanding of the gospel and put aside the legalism and, the, and or the lasciviousness, whatever it is that they've fallen into that is not the gospel. Paul is confident and expresses that confidence, but he says, and this is something that we do well to remember, this is one of the truths and the applications of God's word, he says that he that troubles you shall bear his judgment. And that word trouble means to cause inner turmoil or conflict. And so we've had these Judaizers come in, these who would teach this other gospel and, and make these people insecure, as it were, in their uh, salvation, in, in their faith in what God has done. And that's exactly, so it's the perfect word. It's Trouble is somewhat of a... Uh, translation that we don't uh, identify with uh, in that context. We think of trouble as something slightly different, but that's what it means. And so these churches are doubtful of the sufficiency of Jesus. They're concerned that we are not doing enough, that we are somehow not engaged uh, in the right works, as it were. Those things that would be uh, additional requirements to the to justification by faith, and that's been the, the theme and the target that Paul is expressing throughout the book of Galatians. Uh, and, and as they uh, get into this, they're brought to this needless turmoil about their salvation. Now, there are churches that do this today. This is not new, and it didn't cease with the churches in Galatia. There are those today who will add all kinds of legalisms, all kinds of works, all kinds of things that need to be incorporated into, and they've established their own standard of righteousness. And it isn't to say, we talked about this uh, in the way that Sean expressed it on, on, on Thursday night, which, which I really liked. We talked about, you know, Christianity isn't about a checking boxes. There's one box to check, and Jesus checked it for us. And, and I thought that was such a, it was so well put. Uh, Jesus himself would say, that, listen, this is the work of God, that you believe on him that he sent that you would believe in Jesus Christ. That is, the, that is it. Justification by faith. Simple. But there are those churches today that would burden us with this idea and this, this is what righteousness looks like. This is how we have to live it out. Now, there, will, there is an expected consistency in some respects within, within a single church. I mean, that's just sort of the way it is. You know, you attract the same kind of weirdness that you are. And so, and so here, here we are, guys. Uh, but we're going to be slightly different in some of the applications and the way that we express our faith in that justification than another church over here. doesn't mean that either is wrong necessarily. But when we say this is how it is, that this is the only place that you could have gotten saved, maybe you need to be rebaptized in our church, maybe uh, you need to repent from certain things, and, and we've established a different standard of righteousness. And if that is not based upon the word of God, then we are out of line. And these Judaizers are doing just that. The deceptive thing that they're doing is that they're making it, they're, they're drawing from the word of God and they're putting it into a place that it doesn't belong. Rather than it being fulfilled, they're adding it to as a work that needs to be uh, engaged in. And so Paul has addressed this before. Uh, he, so much so that he proclaims this anathema or this curse back in Galatians in the first chapter. You remember in Galatians 1, verses uh, 7 through 9, he, he says, uh, 
speaking of this gospel that they're preaching, which is not another. He says, it's not another gospel. There is only one gospel. And if we add or we pervert it in any other way, it is not a gospel. Uh, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel. They would corrupt it. Verse 8, but though we, so me, an apostle or anyone else, or an angel from heaven, so a heavenly messenger, preach any other gospel unto you than that which is which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed or, or anathema. That's what the, the Greek word is. And he reiterates that. And so, and as we said before, so now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. So Paul has dealt with this. Uh, there's this aspect of judgment in association with preaching of false gospels, with leading people astray. Whether And I'm convinced that it's there, whether it's, sincerely motivated. I was just, this is how I was brought up, for instance. This is what I've always known. And so I hold this to be true. The responsibility in some respects is still yours. You had the word of God. You had the Holy Spirit. You chose to be accepting of that or not. You chose to uh, interpret scripture through a lens that was something outside of uh, itself, or you chose to interpret scripture through scripture itself. And so there is, there is a harsh punishment that is linked to that. Those who would lead people astray, uh, these Judaizers, I don't think that they're sincere in their motivation. And Paul has addressed that. He says, they zealously affect you so that you might affect them. They're looking for what they can get out of it. And I think we saw that in chapter four. So they have some ulterior motives in this. They're, they like to be called the rabbis. These are the reformed Pharisees. Right? They like to be called rabbis. They like to be given the upper seats. They, li they like to be in those positions of honor. So, hey, we're going to lay these burdens upon you so that we might have some aspect of control, that we might be receiving from you those pats on the back that, hey, you guys really know the Bible, whatever it may be, whatever their, their ulterior motive is. And so what we find is that there is a burden with that. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says this, I would that they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now, the word cut off literally means severed from you. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that if they are saved, that they would be lost from salvation. That's not what he's talking about. In other words, Paul is simply saying that they should be cut off from fellowship. That you who are within the body of Christ, here is all these false teachers, that they would be cut off and removed from fellowship. They wouldn't be allowed in so that they could uh, stir up needless strife, so that they could sow trouble, that they would cast doubt. And I think that there is some aspect where, as we get into, the, into chapter 6, where we look to restore those. But at the same time, we're not letting them do harm. We can't. We as believers have to stand firm on truth. We need to be ready to contend for it whether it's in the church or outside of the church. In Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. And as you turn to Titus chapter 3, I'll just tell you that I think that this kind of application is some of the hardest application to make within the church because you're confronting people with, with error. Uh, if we let our speech be seasoned with grace, if we're sharing the truth in love, if we're engaging with them in a way that is centered about the Word of God with the intent and the motive not to be right, but to restore, I think that it can go well, but it may not go well. And we have to realize that uh, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, that light shining in the darkness is somewhat offensive. And we're going to talk about offense this morning. That's our second application. But in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, he says, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Now that word heretic, that means, it's literally in the Greek, it's the word schismatic. Someone who causes division. And we're going to cause division, right? This is the circumcision camp. This is the non-circumcision camp. This is the carpet camp. This is the black ceiling tile camp or the purple ceiling tile camp, right? We, whatever it may be, as silly as it may be, churches divide over all kinds of things. Now, there may be appropriate things to, we've got to go our separate ways about. We have some very 
distinct doctrinal differences and we may not enjoy fellowship there doesn't mean that it can't exist doesn't mean as we're talking about in ephesians this unity within the body of christ that that, that can't be there um and so we have to balance that to some degree but uh here he is he said hey after the first and second admonition right we we have heard what you had to say. We've compared it to scripture. It doesn't line up. There are problems here. Let's talk about truth. And we've taken some time. We've tried this a couple of times and you're not listening. We have to keep you out of fellowship. We have to ask you to go somewhere else or we have to, whatever it may be, because we can't, we're here to protect. I mean, Titus is one of those pastoral epistles. It's going to these guys who are in leadership and it's it's designed uh, as a tool to give us instruction. There is some responsibility to maintain uh, doctrinal purity within the church, to keep to keep the unity the, the unity that is designed within the church, according to Ephesians chapter four, is designed around sound doctrine, around the gospel itself. So there there is this idea that if he's if he's a heretic, he's somebody that's causing division, uh, whether it's through doctrine, and it might not be through doctrine, it may be other weird things like the carpet, like the, you know, we're going to have coat racks, or we're not going to have coat racks, you know, we shouldn't meet here, we should, whatever it is, there's, there's some, some dealing with that. In verse 11, he says, knowing that he that is such, that, knowing that he that is such is subverted, and sins being condemned of himself. Uh, that word subverted means twisted or perverted. There's some wrong understanding, some wrong worldview something distinct there that needs to be. So, so we have this very direct idea that, listen, the church needs to be pure, that God has established those within the church to keep help keep it pure, to protect it. That's part of what the stewardship, the, the shepherdship of your pastor should be doing, the elders, the, those that are in leadership. And, and we find out that those ultimately that, um, that are sowing this discord within the church or that are adding to the gospel that if they're unresponsive, they're unrepentant when confronted with truth, that there is some judgment that they're bearing. Now, that's at the hands of God. That isn't at my hands. We may put them out of fellowship. I mean, the ultimate goal in discipline within the church is restoration. That is the ultimate goal. That is the end game when it comes to church discipline. It is never just to reject them and to kick them out. It is restoration. It is bringing them back from sin. It is bringing them back and being engaged in that process. And we're going to get into that because it is it is talked about in chapter 6. So know that it's coming. The other thing that we have to realize is this is not personal vengeance. This is something that God is doing. The ultimate, the judgment that is talking about here, they're going to bear their judgment. They stand before God responsible for those things that they have led others astray in. Now, there's an opportunity for them to repent. There's an opportunity for them. Uh, they're not losing salvation, but there is judgment for that. But it isn't my job nor your job to, to punish them. We're not seeking revenge. And so in Romans chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me, good reminders for us as we look at hard truths. How do we apply them correctly? Well, it isn't a personal vengeance. It's not a vendetta. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, it says, Recompense, or repay, other word, in other words, to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lies in you, live peaceably with all men. We live, as much as it lies with me, I'm not going to continue on or lay some other burden at somebody's feet as we were talking about this morning, we're going to be neutral in some respects with the desire that this is where we want people to come. We want to see them restored to faith. We want to see them restored to fellowship. Uh, as much as it lies with me, we're going to be peaceable with all men. Dearly beloved, he says in verse 19, avenge not yourselves. We're not looking out for that revenge. Here we've been wrong. We've been led astray. I grew up in a religion that taught me a false gospel. And there's a lot of people that when they come out of Mormonism that are very bitter. And it's not uncommon for them to get tied up in, in atheism or things like that because they've been deceived. Now, it's also not uncommon for them to come to truth. But they're, 
when they, when they come out and they're bitter, there is this vengeance and there's a lot of, they're very outspoken oftentimes because they've been deceived their whole lives. For me personally, that was not a, at least I don't remember it being an issue. I don't remember it being my position. I mean, I was grieved, uh, but I was also so thankful to have received truth because I came out of Mormonism and came to faith. And that's how I was, that's how I came out of it. There was no interim for me where bitterness could creep in. The Holy Spirit was at work right from the very beginning. Uh, and so something that I've noticed in a lot of Mormon uh, ministry is a lot of bitterness. It's sincerely motivated. We want to see people saved. We want to see them delivered out of it. But it's delivered in a very harsh, uh, and being frank, being blunt, and and standing upon truth, contending for the faith is appropriate, but it's it's antagonistic. And I think that there's a little bit of vengeance there. I want to make you look as silly as possible. I want to win this argument. That's not the motivation. That isn't where we should stand. That's taking vengeance on our own, and that's not for us to do. Rather, we give place under wrath. That's God's department. He's the one who's going to judge those who have sown these untruths who are preaching these false gospels. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So our response should be this. If we want to have a ministry to those who are preaching false gospels, who are, it should look like this. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And that is not our motivation, right? We don't want, we're not trying to make them uncomfortable in in their position that is that isn't that isn't the end goal right we don't want to see them uh struggling the coals of fire on their head is not isn't our motivation and, and all that's all that's meaning is it's the condemnation that they stand as light shines into the darkness that's natural and that's going to happen for you and i as he says in verse 21 we are not overcome of evil but we overcome evil with good with the love that we show with the truth that we hold dear and that we stand upon, that we present graciously, seasoned with grace, uh, and and uncompromisingly, but not meanly. We have to be meek, uh, like Moses, who who was the meekest. Now Moses, you know, he had his problems, but the Bible says he was the meekest man. He had authority, he had power, yet he kept it under control. That's how we ought to operate. Now, there's also the truth, so, so outside of Christ, there are those who are going to bear their judgment. They are guilty of, and, and apart from repentance, there, there's, I think there is stiff judgment to be had at the hands of God for leading people astray. Um, and I, is it worse than other sin? No, it isn't, because there isn't grades of sin. However, uh, Jesus himself said it is better that they would have a millstone tied about their neck and they'd be thrown to the ocean. Then they would cause one of these little ones to stumble, that they would be led astray. It tells me that there is something there that God looks at it. Uh, and, and it's, it is a harsh punishment. They're going to bear their judgment in that regard. For those of us who are in Christ, it's sort of a different operation. Um, for the true believer, whether they have, uh, whether they have fallen into sin or like the churches of Galatia, they have fallen to deceit. They've been led astray. Uh, there is not a cursing or a casting away. Now, there may be some correction. There may need to be those uh, church disciplinary things where there's a loss of fellowship and all of those kinds of things. But what we would expect from the Lord in, in our relationship with him is, is that corrective action that our Heavenly Father would correct us. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5 first, Hebrews chapter 5, and I bring this up because as we, as we study through and as we look at the applications here, the application is that there is judgment, they're going to stand before God, and they're going to have to be responsible for the things that they said, for the, for the untruths that were taught. Now they can repent from those, they can, they can turn from those, but for you and I as believers, there is another application. And I think that sometimes we do, we do well to remember uh, that God is, in fact, dealing with us as his children. 
And I know we've talked about this here in our church quite a bit, but sometimes we feel as if we're the victim and, and we put God in the position of being a bad guy rather than a loving father. And whatever harshness we perceive from him, we interpret it through a wrong understanding of his heart toward us. So in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, he says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Uh, for, when, for when the time you want to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and to become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. I want to just pause there for a moment, because here he is writing to the Hebrews. These are people who have received the oracles of God. They have had the Old Testament from, the very, from Moses' time. They were given all of those examples. They was explained to them that this is the pattern of what is in heaven. This is, this is a foreshadowing of truth. All of that is laid out in the Old Testament, and they missed it. And I said it before, but the book of Hebrews is parallel. It is teaching the same things to a different audience that the, that the book of Galatians teaches to a Gentile audience. It approaches it from a different perspective. But here is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all of it. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's one of the reasons it's my favorite book. Because it takes all of Scripture and puts it together in Jesus. And so here, here they have, they should have been the experts. They should have been the ones leading the charge, as it were, the, the Hebrews. But, but they were not. They, they were incapable. They hadn't come to a point where they could lead others. They were only capable of drinking milk still. They had need that there were those still teaching them. He says, for everyone in verse 13 that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. They haven't grown in their knowledge of truth to the extent that they would be teachers. That should be, this should not be applicable to you and I. But strong meat belongs to them that are full age. In other words, those who are maturing, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And I come here because as believers, this should be where we stand. We who are growing, who are maturing and coming to full age, and it doesn't matter how old we may be physically, we can be spiritually mature at a younger age. And how do we do that? He says, by reason of use, we have exercised our senses to discern both good and evil. And in the context, it's the use of the word. We've talked about it before, but Jesus said, hey, you don't have any need that any man would teach you. We have the Holy Spirit leading us in truth and in righteousness and in justice, and, and that he is uh, giving us insight into everything that Jesus has instructed us. The Holy Spirit leads us in truth. And then not only that, he's given us pastors and teachers that would help us grow in that understanding, that we would be rooted in sound doctrine and not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So we have all of these tools at our disposal but it never relieves us uh, from the, I'm going to use the word duty or obligation. I don't know if that's the best terms, but it doesn't relieve me of the responsibility that I am supposed to be studying the word, that I might be able to rightly divide it. We shouldn't have a church that is dependent upon the pastor or the elders to answer questions. We ourselves, as believers in Christ, should be those who can stand upon the word of truth and share it effectively. That's, that's what every believer should be able to do. Now, we're going to have differing degrees of that. We're going to have different styles, sort of, so to speak. But that should be a goal, that we would understand truth, that we could take what happens in the world around us, and compare it to Scripture and walk away with a biblical perspective on that thing. And it's by reason of use. It's by practice. Their, their senses are exercised to discern both good and evil. I can recognize falsehood. I can recognize ungodliness. I can recognize godliness. And I can recognize truth like the Bereans who are comparing it to Scripture. So these churches in Galatia, when these Judaizers came in and started teaching this false doctrine, they were probably very convincing. They were probably charismatic. They were probably uh, standing on Old Testament truths and passages. But the churches in Galatia should have been able to identify that. 
They should have been able to say, hey, there's a problem here. We need to, we need to have a discussion. And whether or not that happened, we don't know with any certainty, but it's enough that have fallen to the deceit that Paul felt like, I got to write some letters. I need to get some something out there that will help instruct these folks. We need to be those who are strong in our understanding of the Word of God, that we are, by reason of use, able to discern good and evil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32, Now, this is in the context, and we're, we're, I'm making an application here. This is in the context of, of taking the Lord's Supper, of communion. And, he, and he's talking about examining ourselves and seeing where our position is. But he says, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And I want you to take two things here, because there are times where we may have a wrong perspective. And we've talked about this when we studied through repentance and Bible study where we, we want to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. And sometimes I may have a false understanding or a misunderstanding, uh, whether it was how I was brought up under the faith, whether, whether I just adopted some position, or whether I just got it wrong in my spiritual youth. As we come to those things that God instructs us about, there should be a repentance and a turning to bringing every thought captive to the mind of Christ. But here, if we would judge ourselves, if we would take the time to evaluate, Lord, where is my heart here? This is what I think about whatever that topic may be. What does your word say? And I would hold myself up to the truth of Scripture. Then I wouldn't be judged. I'm judging myself. I'm evaluating where my heart stands, where my positions are. What is my body of doctrine? What does the, what does the gospel say? Can I articulate that? Whatever it may be. So we have to judge ourselves. We should not be judged. Verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. That we should not be condemned with the world. So what we have to understand is that when we fall under somebody interacting with us and calling us out on untruth, that isn't necessarily them being mean. That's actually them expressing love towards us. That should be an expression of love within the body of Christ. But we have to understand that that is the work of God in our life. That whether it's directly at his hand or whether it's through somebody else engaging with us, that is the correction of God, that we are chastened of the Lord. And in Hebrews chapter 12, when you're talking about chastening uh, of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12 is where, where you inevitably have to go because it articulates it in a full understanding. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. In other words, don't take it personal. He is not against you. He is for you. You are not a victim. He goes on. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he has received. We have to understand that the correction that we receive at the hands of God is his love expressed towards us. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, if we're not receiving correction of the Lord, whereof all our partakers, all, all God's children receive of his correction. And if we're not receiving it, then you are bastards and not sons. And at that moment, we should probably examine ourselves and see whether we be in the faith which is an exhortation that we find in Scripture. It is biblical for us to look and say, okay, where am I? Now, don't walk in doubt. When you've established, yes, I am born again, at that point, your evaluation should shift from your salvation to where do I stand? Where is my heart? Am I thinking about things the way that God thinks about things? He continues on, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they are our earthly fathers. Verily, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. There's no motivation in God that, other than our best. And we read in Romans chapter 8 that he is working all things 
for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For his children, we know that God is redeeming everything for our best, that we might be partakers of his holiness, that he would mold us into the image of his son. He says in verse 11, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. And we've all been there. We're corrected. When we are confronted where in our hearts and minds with untruth that we may have held on to, or that we may have been taught, or that we, we believe, it rocks our world. Because all of a sudden, everything that we experience day in and day out, that we have filtered through that understanding, is challenged. And rightfully so. It's not joyous. It can be hard to go through. But on the end, he says, nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. As we are willing to submit ourselves to the instruction of the Holy Spirit, to the correction of the word of God, to bring every thought captive into the mind of Christ, as we operate in repentance, turning from false doctrine to good doctrine, turning from false gospels to truth, it brings about fruit of righteousness within us. And I like how, if, if we go on, he says, wherefore? Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Let it rather be healed. In other words, don't go through the correction of God feeling as if we were the victim and woe is me, and hands hanging down and feeble knees. I mean, you could just see a little kid, right, dragging it. You've seen them in the grocery store. I don't get the candy bar or whatever it is. I've been that kid. Uh, but there's a posture that comes with it. And he picks up on that. He says, listen, don't be that little child. Understand it correctly. This is the love of God toward you. This is him dealing with you as his child. So here we are operating in this truth. We have this correction. Those who have been led into untruth, those who are doing the leading, rather, they're going to bear their judgment before God. And it isn't our place to sow judgment there. It's not vengeance is not ours. But they're going to bear whatever consequence there is for that at the hands of God. That is something that we do, we do well to consider because we don't want to fall into that position. Now, I think that God would correct us. Just as we just looked at, God would correct us. He's not going to leave his children there. He wants to see us grow have peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. He wants us to represent him and to articulate truth clearly and correctly. So he's not going to leave us there. But it should be an encouragement for us to know truth, that we would study to show ourselves approved, that we'd be those who are continually maturing in our understanding of the doctrines of Scripture, that we are continually understanding and growing in this is the true gospel. This is how I articulate that to people. This is how I can train myself, as it were, to be a good conduit for the truth of God to the world around me. The next application, we find it in verse 11. He says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased? So Paul asks the simple question, if I had compromised, if I had given in to these Judaizers, if I had acknowledged, okay, we have to be circumcised to be saved, he says, then I wouldn't be persecuted anymore. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, there's contention between us because I'm not accepting that doctrine. That is false. Um, Paul, had he done that, would have probably been brought into the fold. He would have been held up as an example and a shining star. Here's a little feather in our spiritual cap. We convinced... The, the Apostle Paul that were right. That would have made news. But he, but he talks about, he says, then is the offense of the cross ceased. And he talks about this offense, and, and we do well to understand uh, that there is some offense associated with the gospel. Now we, the church, in many respects, has tried to not cause offense. Uh, we've tried to make the gospel palatable. We've tried to soften it so that it wouldn't hit people so bluntly. Um, but just consider that Jesus's perfection is condemning to the self-righteous. 
Here is Jesus, who is the standard of perfection, that is perfectly righteous, and we can't measure up to it. It is offensive from the very get-go. The Jews stumbled that the law was not the means of righteousness. And many today stumble at the same things, that I don't get to bring anything to the table, that my righteousness is what I have deemed to be right and wrong and how I should operate and how I should be acceptable to God. Doesn't mean anything. They're just rags of righteousness. Uh, the fact that I don't get to, and, and in fact, have nothing to contribute to my salvation or righteousness is offensive to people. The simplicity of the gospel is offensive to people. So the word offense, it's, it means scandal. It's the Greek word scandalon. Sounds like scandal because it is scandalous. It literally means trap spring. You know, if you've ever opened up one of those traps where you got to, I mean, I, you know, you open them up and you hope it, or a mouse trap, you know, you put the little thing over that, that is it. That, that, that spring that creates the action. That's literally what it means. It's what entangles us. It's that which causes indignation within us. It, it literally is translated most often in the New Testament as stumbling block. That which would ensnare us. And I think it's interesting that it originates from this trap spring mentality because it must be easy and quick to fall into. That we can get caught up in it very easily. And he talks about this being related completely to the cross, the perfection uh, that, that we experience, that, that Jesus is. Um, the truth of the gospel is going to be offensive. It's light into the darkness. And we, Jesus talks about that in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. I didn't come to condemn the world, he says in John three seventeen, but that the world through him might be saved. That is his purpose. But this is condemnation, it goes on to say, that men love darkness rather than light. They don't want to be exposed. So here we are when we express something as simple as, no, we are saved by Jesus Christ, justification by faith, and that alone, that simplicity offends people. Because I want my stuff to count for something. I've invested time and effort in, in rites and rituals and all these things that are perceived as being good and moral and all that. That should count for something. And it's offensive to people to tell them, well, it's not. It doesn't. Now, in Christ, there is reward associated with it. But listen, I'm not convinced, nor do I think that Scripture teaches that any of that counts for anything before Christ. I could be wrong about that. That's, that's my opinion as I read Scripture. But uh, we'll, when we get to heaven, we'll know if some of those rewards were from before or after. Um, but I think that there's no foundation laid except for that which is laid in Christ Jesus, and I can't build on that foundation. Until that foundation is there, I don't think there are any gold, silver, or precious stones that I'm storing up in heaven. Just throwing that out there. They're rags of righteousness. They're not things that God's going to keep around. And so there's a fence with that. There is a fence to tell people to listen. What you've sincerely been taught and believed and brought up with is actually a lie. It is leading you away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and is leading you to self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. That all of these things that you've gone through, that is offensive to people. There is an offense in the cross, and it is the line in the sand that God himself has drawn. And the church comes along behind him and tries to scrub it out. We do a disservice to those. The Bible talks about itself and, and one of the purposes of the law that we talked about is that mirror, that, that which confronts us. This shows us our unrighteousness. This shows us, uh, as a schoolmaster, our need for Jesus Christ. And if we muddy that image, somehow we can look at it and say, well, yeah, it's bad, but there's a little bit of good in there. Which is a humanist perspective, which is, which is incorrect. There is none righteous, no, not one. Oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of sin? Paul would say. There's a need to be delivered uh, completely and wholly. <clears throat> we want to be unwavering in the truth of the gospel. We want to stand firm. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18, we're going to go through verse 25. Paul here addresses, in many respects, the, the scandal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? We think about, we, we think about what, what we've been raised with. Here is, here's what God has put within us. This is, this is the conscience. This is the moral understanding of what is right and what is wrong, and that has been the same since the very beginning of time. It is related to who God is, his standards, and his righteousness. And it hasn't changed, nor did it become official, so to speak, when, when God gave the law. It was official long before that. It has always been. And so here, Paul talked about, uh, and I can't remember where it is, I apologize. Paul talks about when we see those Gentiles who do those things that are contained in the law without having been understanding or having received the law, that, hey, there's, a, there's something there, that God has put something within them. And so all I'm saying is that this wisdom that we have, all of this, what is right and wrong with this morality that God has put within us, uh, even though that it's there, it has nothing to do. And, and though there may be people who have struck upon the wisdom of God's word and they reap success as a, as a, as a benefit of applying biblical principle, whether they are believers or not. Uh, listen, I'll tell you, I think Jordan Peterson is one of those people. He struck upon some principles of God, and he's effective in articulating them. He's not a believer, and he's not an expert in the Word of God. Jordan Peterson is not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but there is benefit there. There's wisdom there. But his wisdom, the wisdom that he appears to have, is simply the foundation that I've struck upon some biblical principle. That's somewhat controversial today, <laughs> but there it is. Anyway, uh, so we have this wisdom. I will, he says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Whether it's uh, morality and just understanding right and wrong, all of those things, they don't, they don't amount to salvation. They don't bring about righteousness only by faith in Jesus Christ. And even if it's somebody who is struck upon biblical truth, right? They're, they're, they've, they've tapped into the formula, as it were, that is here in Scripture. And they're reaping some of the success related to, to that. Uh, it it doesn't, doesn't necessarily make them, and it definitely does not save them. So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, it's all pale in comparison. For after, he says in verse 21, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So here we have wise people. We've tapped into biblical principle or whatever it is. We are applying wisdom. And it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Because those who are preaching Jesus Christ, it is foolishness to those who are outside. It is foolishness. That, that here is Jesus Christ who would become, who is God in the flesh, who would come down and take the punishment for sinful man so that he might redeem us, that he might save us. And that's foolishness to them. And he goes on in verse 22, for the Jews require a sign. And all throughout the New Testament, we see the Pharisees. What is the sign that you give? And Jesus said, I'm only going to give you one sign. You can destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rise it back up. He said, I'm going to give you the sign of the resurrection of my physical body. That's it. It's the only sign you're going to get. And 
But the Jews required a sign. They asked him over and over and over. I mean, you know, ignore all the miracles that he's done <laughs> thus far. It was enough for John the Baptist when he was in prison there and he had some doubts or whatever was going on in his heart. And he sent some of his disciples over, asked Jesus, is he the one? And Jesus simply says, tell John, remind him that the blind see, I'm going to have to do this slowly or I'll get it wrong. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. That's the answer. Take back the miracles that are prophesied about the Messiah are happening. And that was enough. There were plenty of signs they chose not to, they chose to ignore them. They didn't want those signs. They wanted whatever sign was going to be the sign for them. People are the same today. I want my sign. Lord, if you'll just give me a sign. He did. He gave you his son, Jesus Christ. He gave you the word of God. He spelled it out in black and white and then translated it throughout all of history into whatever language you needed to understand it. And you will not accept it just like the Jews would not accept it. They required some sign. It was something different. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, enlightenment, some, some spiritual thing that would come down. And, and But this is what we preach. This is the message that we have, he says in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that alone. The truth that he was crucified, that on that cross, he was made sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that we could be made his righteousness, that we might be justified by faith in him and him alone. And he says, under the Jews, that's a stumbling block. It's that same word that's translated, uh, whatever it was translated, the, the trip spring, that, <laughs> that scandal. To the Jews, that is scandalous. That Jesus Christ would, in fact, be the Messiah that he was the one that was promised, that, he, that everything that was foretold that he did, it confirmed that he was the Messiah, and we chose to reject it. All of that is scandal of them. It's a stumbling block. It's something to overcome. And under the Greeks, it says it's foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the power of God and the salvation and it is the wisdom of God in that he knew that he had care of it. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. And when we say, listen, we need some other sign, when we would say, uh, it's too simple, it's foolish, we put ourselves in the position that I know better than God. That my wisdom, that my... Uh, that I know better. Than he who has spoken everything into existence, who by his very power holds it all together. We would put ourselves in that position that we would say, I know. And to compromise the truth of the gospel is to trust in something altogether different. It is not a gospel. So whether it's associated with signs and wonders, and we have to have these things present, we have to have these things engaged in, whether it's associated with uh, some wisdom or, or, or whether like Gnosticism, right? We have this other knowledge, these other things, which in some respects is what the Judaizers have done. Listen, Paul preached unto you the gospel. Yeah, Jesus Christ. But let us give you the graduate version. We had all this other stuff that Paul glossed over. Let us fill you in on that, this special knowledge that you need to have. Pretty subtle form of Gnosticism. But that's all Gnosticism said in many respects, right? There's this other knowledge. That was largely unaccepting of anything spiritual as well, but we're going to fill you in. And every other religion presents itself simply with the fact that, listen, we know better than God who has created and spoken everything into existence. That our wisdom is superior, that our understanding is better, that the power that is there is something above and beyond. And as I said, the church, in many respects, has come right along behind God and muddied that line in the sand, has tried to do its best to erase it. That the offense of the cross would be non-existent. That when people hear the gospel, they wouldn't be confronted with truth, but they would be confronted with Jesus, their buddy. Now, Jesus is my friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, but only because I've come to faith, because I was confronted with an absolute need to be born again. Not because I was adopted into a family so that I'd have all these brothers and sisters and this 
great social circle and good music or whatever it might be. The church has to be a steward of the offense of the cross. We have to stand firm upon truth. We have to be those who would be unwavering and unwilling to compromise it. And I would suggest that because as Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto, unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, that if we're unwilling to compromise, that if we hold that standard up, if we ourselves are unashamed of the gospel of Christ, we'll probably have greater success in our witnessing ministries with our neighbors, with our friends, because that's what it was designed to be. We'll continue on. We're a little short today. You know, as I was preparing and finishing up my notes, I was under the influence of anesthesia, so I had to be very careful. So, <laughs> so uh, I kept it short in the interest of not speaking falsehood <laughs> or doing my best not to. Um, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I thank you for your word that speaks clarity into our lives. Uh, Father, I don't want to be one that comes with platitudes. We want to come with, uh, with the precision and the accuracy and the authority of your word. And so, Lord, if there's anything that has been presented here this morning that is incorrect, Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would correct, uh, that we would circle back and, and address those things, Lord, that we would come to repentance and that we would bring every thought captive. We want to be those who are rooted in truth and equipped and thoroughly furnished by it. We thank you for the opportunity that we have here to study through your word, Lord. And as we encounter uh, things in our world today, Lord, we see that they're not new problems, that your word has addressed them. And as we remove from the term application this extremely specific, Lord, we begin to see principles that come to bear upon our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would have the grace to let those principles of your word be the foundation. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we enjoy. We praise you and thank you for fitting us together within the body of Christ and the unique position you've given us here in our community. Lord, I pray that you would multiply our influence as we have opportunity to uh, witness, as we have opportunity to uh, interact. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, most of all, that he would uh, bear our sins on the cross, that we might be completely justified and declared righteous by faith and by that alone. Lord, we ask this, we rejoice, we commit this time of fellowship into your hands, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. worship i'm sorry didn't <laughs> didn't do any of those things <laughs>